Maj Jabrani is a longtime stand-up comedian and actor. Those acting credits include everything from Friday After Next to Curb Your Enthusiasm. As a stand-up, his most recent special is out now for free on YouTube. It's called The Birds and the Bees. You can also check it out through his website, MajDabrani.com, or you can see the live version here in Austin this weekend. He has shows at Creek in the Cave Friday and Saturday night. Two shows each night. That's Friday, February 2nd, Saturday the 3rd. Go to creekandcave.com to snag those tickets. Oz, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great and uh, excited to have you in Austin this weekend. I'm not totally sure, so I'm just going to ask. Have you had a chance to perform stand-up in Austin in the past? I have performed stand-up in Austin a couple of times in the past. One time, it was kind of funny, one time um, MySpace, as MySpace was um, ending its run, they started doing these things called uh, the super secret comedy shows mm. where they would like announce on you know the night before, two nights before, and then the place would fill up. Well, I caught the tail end of that. So it was at a point where nobody was on MySpace so they're like, let's do a super secret comedy show for you at, um, I think it's called Cap Cities. And I was like, let's do it. And then as like, as we approached the date, they were like, oh, we've only had like 10 RSVPs. And I'm like, well, what's going on? They go, well, you know, MySpace, it really isn't a thing anymore. I was like, well, then why am I doing this with you? But it was fun. The audience was fun. We had a good time and we ended up last minute, you know, getting more people to come out. And then I came back one other time. Um, I do a show on NPR called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a fake news quiz. So we came to the, I think it's the, is it the Paramount Theater there? In, in, yeah. In, yeah, we came out and did two nights at the Paramount, and that was fun. They, uh, they, they, it was leading up to Christmas, not this year, I think the year before. So okay. they had some like Christmas event going on. And since the NPR was the co-sponsor of the Christmas event, they took me and the other comedians out to their big Christmas thing. And they had us kind of join in with the carolers for a minute. It was kind of, it was kind of funny. Um, but I love, I love Austin. I mean, who doesn't love Austin? I'm, I'm excited. This is my first time headlining a legit show in Austin. So I'm really happy. Yeah. Creek in the cave is a really fun room. I know that the Saturday early show is already sold out and these other shows will sell out as well. So go to creekandcave.com to snag tickets for uh, Mazda shows Friday night, seven and nine, I believe. That Saturday night, 9 a.m. 9 p.m. show is still available. And I'm on the inside here, so I don't know how big of a deal this is elsewhere. You, uh, I believe your roots are in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. One of your home clubs is the Comedy Store, which has obviously uh, been a longtime hotspot for stand-up comedy. New York also qualifies, California to a lesser degree. Austin finds itself as a sort of stand-up mecca all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, uh, is this something that people in California are talking about as well? Just how big of a stand-up scene uh, Cal uh, Austin has acquired over the last couple of years? Well, I don't know if people are talking about it as much, but I think people have taken note. And that is, especially for me as well, because as I'm coming there, um, I know a lot of the old LA guys that are out there. So I'm reaching out and going like, hey, I'm going to be in Austin for a couple of days. Want to grab a coffee? And it used to be you would do that if you're going to New York or you're going to LA. But now Austin has is like the third leg in that case, because- if you think about it, you know, there's obviously a lot of cities where you could do a lot of comedy. But I think the base that was set down with, you know, Joe Rogan and then all the other guys coming through um, that that they've set up there and now multiple comedy clubs. Um, it's uh, 
it's it's definitely another you know another base of comedy and and i'm and i'm excited about that I'm, as comedians you know it's interesting whenever i travel uh if i go like if i'm in new york for example and i'm gigging somewhere um after my show i know that i can always go down to you know uh the comedy cellar or something and run into some comics and just hang out all night and talk so um uh that's that's kind of i think austin is starting to pick up that reputation and uh i'm excited for it man it's good for you guys and, and why not you know it's a great city and and i'm happy that now it's got this great comedy scene and and a lot of comedians enjoy coming there by the same token the comedy store is obviously different level i'd say comedy store and the comedy cellar are the two biggest places in the country in terms of reputation and just how Good they still are. Uh, when did you start in stand-up, Maz? And at what point did you make your way to the comedy store? I started in 1998 in L.A. You know, a lot of people don't get started in L.A. They come from other places. I started in L.A. And because uh, I, I grew up in Northern California and my parents being immigrant parents wanted me to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer. So I kind of shifted, went, you know, tried different careers along the way. And I was in my mid-20s and I said, let me do this. Started in 98. And then I think by 99, I was doing basically open mics and bringer shows at the comedy store. And I was there. I was there in the dark ages of the comedy store. So I'd be, you know, I would get, I used to get, and, and I wasn't not a dirty comic, but Mitzi Shore would put me up uh, at like midnight after, let's say, Joe Diaz, Joe Rogan, Eddie Griffin, Andrew Dice Clay. So it was this lineup of guys that were all monsters. And they were all really like edgy and dirty. And then I'd be going up and trying to do my act about politics or something. And I remember having a conversation with Joe Diaz about like, why is she putting me up late? He's like, bro, she's got plans for you, bro. <laughs> and so I really, I grew there. I, uh, I always tell comedians that are starting out, I go, put yourself in the most uncomfortable position to be in, whether it's like being the opening act as people are still walking in or being the closing act as people are leaving. I said, that's where you grow. And so the comedy store was my home for the longest time. I still love that place. I still go to the comedy store uh, whenever I'm in town in L.A. And it's I, I saw it go from a place where, I mean, the dark ages were crazy. Like you'd show up on a Friday night and the, the original room would be half empty and the main room would be pretty much empty. Um, but now it's packed and it's got the best of the best. And even back then I had the best, you know, back then, the truth is, I was happy about it back then because there was no stakes. You'd show up and you wouldn't feel like, oh, I have to impress everybody. I could experiment and I could grow. And I did. I grew exponentially at the comedy store. And if anybody ever comes to L.A., you got to it's the mecca of comedy in many ways. And, and, I, and I highly recommend it as a place to go see. I've heard other comics talk about it being dark days in the 90s, even though there were some big time comedians there. What was the turning point for that place it's at some point in the early 2000s? Yeah, so I would say it was the like I started, like I said, in the late 90s. So it was late 90s to the early aughts. It was very interesting. So I think Mitzi, Mitzi had made people regulars that reminded her of the heyday of the 80s so she had like a guy who kind of reminded her of richard pryor she had a guy that reminded her of jim carrey she had a guy that reminded her of gary shandling those guys would all be up but they were not richard pryor and gary shandling and uh jim carrey they were they were like some of them were just not funny and so the club had some comics who were not up to par and then and then people just didn't want to come industry didn't want to come all that stuff and i would say probably like somewhere 
probably in the mid aughts, like 2006, 2007, 2008, they started bringing in more um, co comedians that were established, that were funny, that were then bringing people to the, to the club. And also you had guys like Joe Rogan who was starting to do more social media type stuff. Then podcasts came in. Podcasts were a huge game changer. I remember going up at the club when Joey Diaz had his podcast. Of course, Joe Rogan has his podcast, uh, Mark Maron's podcast. And I remember telling some other comedians, I said, you know what's great about those guys bringing their fan base is that those fans are comedy fans. So we're not just performing to some random tourists that don't know what comedy is. We're performing to comedy fans. And that makes all the a world of difference because they understand comedy. They know that these are jokes. They know when to laugh. And all of a sudden, the clubs, the, the comics just seemed hotter. I mean, the, the crowds seemed hotter and hotter. And it's just continued, you know, as you get guys like Andrew Santino and Bobby Lee and, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, Eliza Schlesinger, Netflix specials, all that stuff. Every social media thing, everything has added up to the point where I think worldwide comedy fans are more savvy now. And so when you get a comedy fan, it makes a world of difference for comedians because the worst thing for a comedian is to go up there and be like, I am slinging my best stuff and I'm getting nothing out of this audience because they don't get comedy. So I, I knock on wood, we've come to a point where a lot of these fans do get it. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting place also because sometimes you have to work out material and you can you know you can go to the comedy store and because it's a uh, a top-notch crowd, they're they're going to be the great equalizer even if they're familiar with you and you've made them laugh in the past if uh, the joke that you're telling is not refined enough just yet, it's going to fall flat. It's not going to get that laugh and so you're going to have to make that mental note that something needs to be done a little bit differently the next time. Too. Well, yeah, well that's the that's the issue with like uh, I should say that's the uh, sorry, my dog's barking. Yasu, come here. Hey, come here. Come here. Sorry. Um, hold, on, hold on. Let me get over here. Yasu. Yasu. See, this is my this is me doing crowd work. Yasu, come here. <laughs> Yasu, come here. Come here. Look, I gave her a treat. You got to give the crowd a treat and they'll listen to you. Um, no, I uh, you were talking about the, the the material. You know, I I feel like, you know, back in the day, again, when the stakes were even lower, a lot of comedians were a lot more open to trying out new material. And I think I heard Chris Rock or somebody talk about how the, the, the uh, uh, double-edged sword of success is the more successful you are, the harder it is to try new material, go out on that plank. Because when, when somebody says, oh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Rock is here, everyone expects rock and roll. But he's there to work out material. And I've seen actually Chris Rock is a master at this. I've seen him show up at places and be like, hey, guys, lower your expectations. I'm just trying stuff out. And he'll try the stuff out and then he'll hit them with the old stuff and they're with him. Uh, similarly, at the comedy store now, for me, what I'll do is if I have a new idea, I'll throw it right in the middle of a set that's happening. Or sometimes I'll start at the beginning and I'll just come in hot with like this idea. And and I that's where we work our stuff out. So no matter how hot of a crowd it is, you're always wanting to try stuff out. The, the biggest problem comes when the person before you just slays and you're like oh god now i can't really try that new bit i was gonna do i gotta go up there and follow that wave for a second um but it's all it's all man it's it's a beautiful thing i mean if you're a comedy fan and i am a comedy fan i was a fan first um it's such a beautiful thing to watch and be like 
and try to figure out like, okay, how do I, how do I take this person who just killed this audience and they think this person is a God? How do I follow that person and still bring in the new bit that I wanted to bring in and get my objective fulfilled? And it's a little puzzle you got to play with, but, but I swear, I love, I love trying to figure that out and, and getting those little butterflies going in your stomach of like, Oh, I got to follow this person. And you go and you do it. And ultimately I think it's just faith in yourself is trusting yourself. And it's a life lesson. Like anybody who puts in any time into any one uh, practice, eventually you get really good at it and that brings confidence with it. And then that gets you to a point where you're like, I'm going to try my stuff out. When do you think you got really good at stand up? Again, man, I people hit me up all the time. Hey, can you watch my clips? You know, I'm, I'm a comedian. I've been doing this for two years. And I go, listen, I don't need to watch it. You don't need my feedback on your clips. What you need to do is keep writing, keep getting on stage about five to 10 times a week. After five years, you're going to start feeling pretty good. After 10 years, you're actually going to be pretty good. So I remember, I think about 10 years in, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good. But 20 years in, I remember saying like, I think I was on stage one time and I was like, I'm really good at this. Like I, I even said it. And then I saw Ch Chappelle say that in a special and i was like oh if he feels like that he's 10 years further in i was like oh i wonder if i'll i'm sure i'll feel even more so it really is a jedi thing right i think seinfeld was talking about that it really is was it a seinfeld or chris rock it really is a jedi like like the 10 years in you start going like i got this 20 years in you go i could, I could go up anywhere um and i feel that now i feel very com comfortable and comp you know the audience the audience wants to see you be comfortable. So whether you're in front of a corporate crowd or you're in front of a crowd that's a foreign crowd or whatever it is, if you are under control, the audience feels under control. And sometimes being under control takes you, you know, calling the elephant in the room. It's like takes you going up on stage and going like, wow, I've never done stand up, you know, in a, in a train station or wherever you are. Right. I recently did stand up at some like tennis club. Um, and it's some offside, some room off to the side at the tennis club. And I was just making fun of the fact that like, my God, I'm at a tennis club. And the same guy who booked me there had booked me to Delhi once before. And I was like, guys, this is a step up. I go, last time you booked me, I was at a deli. So they, I'm doing self-deprecating stuff, but I'm being honest. And they're seeing that I've got control. So that when I go into my material, they come with me. So that comes, that comes, you know, at least 10 years in, I, I don't think you, you feel that comfort before then. I was talking to Donnell Rawlings a month or so ago, and he mentioned to me that he had just filmed his new stand-up special. It'll be coming out on Netflix sometime soon. And it was literally in the middle of recording uh, one of the two or three times that he was recording through that special. He had a sort of out-of-body experience, and he realized in that moment, as he's talking and, and like giving his material out to the crowd, he's like, wow, I just realized that however I choose to uh, give this to an audience, whether I'm saying it, whether I'm writing it out, whether I'm singing it, perhaps like this is going to kill regardless of how I choose to do it. I've finally reached that point in my stand-up career. So it's cool to hear you guys talk about that. By the same token, you mentioned Mitzi Shore a little bit earlier. She is such a fascinating character in the history of comedy. Plenty of comedians talk about that time where Mitzi finally did pass them at the comedy store where they get to become a paid regular. I heard you tell your story to uh, Gianmarco Sorezi on his podcast that came out a few months back. And it's actually a very similar story to uh, a buddy of mine, fellow Armenian, Sam Tripoli, 
where she passes you with a caveat of wanting you to play a little bit more of a character than you cared to. And you thought about it and ultimately you made the right decision and not necessarily going down that road. So kudos to you for having the, uh, the foresight within a much bigger moment to know the difference between uh, right and wrong with regards to that future path. Well, yeah, you know, first of all, I tell that story in my, 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 my latest special is called the birds and the bees. It's on YouTube. People can watch it, but I tell the story in the first 10 minutes of the birds and the bees about how Mitzi, because I was the only comedian of Middle Eastern descent at the club, she wanted me to wear a turban and a dishtasha. And I had to battle a little bit to figure out a way not to wear it. And ultimately, I, th- I told the club, I said, listen, I could wear it. But like if people that are fundamentalists find out that I'm making fun of them, they're going to come blow up the club. Now, was that going to happen? I don't think so. But was I able to get out of wearing the dishtasha and the turban? Yes. So that's how I got out of it. Tripoli is an interesting story because Sam's also one of my best friends and, and earliest friends in comedy. Sam uh, had 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 um, auditioned for Mitzi and she had not passed him. But then once I was a regular, Mitzi wanted to do a show with all Middle Eastern comedians. So she'd seen Ahmed Ahmed. And so she brought Ahmed 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 in, who was also a friend of mine. Uh, I'd seen Aaron Cater, who's half Palestinian. We brought him in and we were looking for more Middle Eastern comedians. And at the time, since Sam was a friend of mine and his last name is Tripoli, I called him. I go, Sam, your last name's Tripoli. Are you Libyan? Like, what, what do you, what's your background? He goes, I'm half Armenian. I go, I think that'll work. Um, which technically speaking is not, I mean, it's kind of Middle East. It's more like it be Eastern European. Anyway, we're, we're the I outcasts. Called, we're the outcasts of society. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, at that point, I called um, Duncan Trussell, who was the booker of the club and also friends with Sam. I go, Duncan, um, how about Sam? Uh, he's half Armenian. And Duncan's like, oh, that's a great idea. So we used Sam's uh, uh, half Armenian background to get him to become a regular because Mitzi at that point was like, all right, you're in. And he became a regular then. And, 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 and you know, we all came up together. We'd watch each other's backs. Even Brett Ernst, it was like another one where we were doing a big show and Mitzi wanted me to jump ahead on the lineup and Brett was on the lineup. And I said, let Brett go first and then I'll go after. So I went and hid so that so that they couldn't find me. And they were like, we can't find Maz. And they're like, all right, put up Brett. And then Brett goes, kills, becomes a regular. And then I went up after. But we were all I mean, that we were all doing that for each other. So um she was the kingmaker and, and she had method to her madness and it's a magical club. And I owe a lot to Mitzi. You know, this is at a time when you got to think, you know, a lot of people in the industry weren't giving comedians from my background, any kind of uh, love, you know, and, and Mitzi saw like, she's Jewish. She saw the potential for comedians from a middle Eastern background, Muslims. I'm not that religious, but like Muslims, middle Eastern, to come and show a positive side of our of our people to counter that you know axis of evil stereotype. So she uh, she was definitely a um, a trailblazer in that way. You talked a little bit earlier about a concept that is so important for people nowadays because we're at a time and look, it's not easy for everybody. Some people have really hard existences, but a lot of people have really easy existences versus how things used to be. And that is putting yourself in difficult situations. Um, It's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. So when did that idea really start to click for you? Was it a matter of uh, growing up as a kid who had immigrated from uh, Iran to the Bay Area at such a young age, trying to fit in with other kids around you and realizing that going through that difficulty actually made you a stronger person after a little bit? 
Look, I think you look back on your life, and I heard Michelle Obama recently say that everything you do every day is practice for the future. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One is, um, you know, I'm a big, I played soccer growing up. And my wife, uh, when my son was doing club soccer, which basically takes over your life, she was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? I said, babe, it's not just him. You know, yeah, he's not going to be a professional soccer player, but it's about him learning the idea of hard work, teamwork, and getting somewhere. And I use that example of when I was in high school, we had a good team. And the idea was to put in the effort to continue to be better and, you know, win the championship. And so I used to jog. We had a hill, like it was like two miles or so. I would jog uphill to be in shape. Uh, for this season and we won. And I said, it's the hard work that I put in my head back then that when I end up then at the comedy clubs and I'm standing there for my midnight spot and Dice comes over and he shows up and he goes, I'm going to go do 45 minutes. Now we're at 1245 because, you know, veteran comics could bump newer guys. So then Di now we're at 1245. Then Eddie Griffin shows up. He does another 45. Now we're at, you know, 130. And then somebody else shows up and you end up at like 145 being the last spot. Now, a lot of other comics that were at my level at that time were getting in their cars and leaving. But I was staying. I was staying because I knew that this was finally the thing that I wanted to do. And so that was where some of that work ethic was coming in. And so no gig was a gig where I was going to leave. I wasn't going to I wasn't going to be intimidated to not follow anybody. I followed some amazing comedians and died to death sometimes. And sometimes I learned learned how to follow amazing comedians i would drive all over wherever i could for like you know 20 dollar gig here you know three hour drive for 20 dollars wasn't the 20 dollars it was a 15 20 minutes on stage so i realized hard work comes in and then the other thing about taking the risks you know one night there was a comedian named freddie soto he, he was actually from el paso texas um who was one of the funniest guys he was getting ready to hit he, back in the day he was on tour with him pablo francisco carlos mencia bobby lee and Freddie was just funny, funny, funny. And one night in the original room, I had like the 145 spot. Freddie was sitting in the back where, where Mitzi's chair was right by the exit, this dark room. I couldn't really see him. I went on stage. I started doing my jokes. And the only people that were actual audience members, there was these two kind of nerdy looking guys with this one really hot girl. And I started doing my act at 145. And about you know a minute or two in where it's all lukewarm, I go, what am I doing? I just start talking to them. I go, guys, I'm curious. How did you two end up with her? What's the story here? And I just started talking to them. And then they would respond. I would respond. They're laughing. I'm laughing. I'm riffing. I'm going back into material. I'm coming out of material. And I did my 15-minute set, and I came off. And Freddie, who'd been sitting in the back, he goes, hey, man, you're funny. I go, thanks. He goes, yeah. He goes, it's not about the bits. He goes, you're either funny or you're not. He goes, you got that thing. And that was really... Uh, a, a, a big uh, encouragement point for me. And it was also a big eye opener of you've got to put yourself in these uncomfortable positions because that's where you go past these bits that are basically your bits are, 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 are things that you're leaning on. Your bits are your safety net. Extending yourself into the reality of the moment is where you really find out if you're funny or not. And so now, because of that muscle that I grew then, now when I do a show, I can do five, 10 minutes of just crowd work at the top, talking to people and being comfortable in that, and then going to my bits and then coming out and being honest. And there's times when 
I'll go up on stage and maybe a bit comes out of being honest. There's been times when like I went, I, I don't know what was going on one day. I was just recently, like this was like a few months ago. I was just grumpy. I felt grumpy. I was, I was upset at my wife, my kids, my dog, everybody in the house for whatever reason. And I'm not a grumpy person, but I was grumpy. And I went up on stage at the Laugh Factory and I just, I just started talking. I go, guys, I'm so happy I'm here. I could talk to you guys. And I started kind of like, you know, going off on my family and my and my dog but it was fun it was like therapeutic and it was uh something that would that was also material creating because i'm in a real emotional place you know that's the best comedy is where it comes from an emotional point of view um and so yeah i think i think you just gotta you gotta be willing and able to leave the material in the safety net and just and just be all right, last question, Maz. Speaking of funny, the beginning of the end of Curb Your Enthusiasm is this Sunday, the first episode of the final season. You were in an earlier episode of this incredible series. What was that experience like? Yeah, I played in the season where Larry and David Schwimmer are doing the, they're doing the producers on Broadway. I played this Indian Sikh who worked at the hotel where Larry is uh, staying. And then I fix his air conditioner and he doesn't tip me, and then he ends up tipping me tickets to his um, to his performance, and then I end up finding David Schwimmer's watch, and we get into a wrestling match. It was a lot of fun, I'll be honest with you. It was, for comedians, some of the most fun is when you're told to improvise. Like, I was in the movie Friday After Next with uh, Ice Cube, Cat Williams, uh, uh, you know, Mike Epps. The underrated Christmas movie of all time. It's a great movie and it's so much fun. And that was one of those where the director is Marcus Rayboy and produced by, you know, Ice Cube. Ice Cube smart. He casts comedians and he goes, improvise. So we would get the scene as is. And then it would say, look, Mike's going to go off. So just go with him. John Witherspoon was another one. I mean, it was it was made Terry Crews. It was what a great cast. But the, my favorite moments were when the improv would start. And I could just go on and on and on. And similarly with Curb, I just remember doing my my stuff with Larry and they would be like, OK, Larry doesn't tip you. You're angry. And it's like, OK, just make it up. And I remember one time because as actors, a lot of times you got to like keep saying the same lines in the exact same way with the same hand movements that you've done in the previous take. And I remember one time I did a take on Curb and then I went to Jeff Garland. I go, hey, do you remember if I put the jet, like, you know, whatever did, you know, move my hand this way or that way. I want to replicate it. He goes, who cares? He goes, just do it differently. I was like, Oh my God, I'm so free. I can do whatever I want. So it, what a, what a great experience. And actually when we filmed my episode, they flew me out to New York as it was happening in New York. And I got to actually uh, be in the same uh, episode with uh, Stephen Colbert. He had a very small, this is before he had the, you know, the Colbert report and all that stuff. He had a small uh, scene in there uh paul mazurski um it was just so cool to just be around these people and hear stories and and um we shared the same trailer and mazurski was telling us stories of like working with federico fellini and i mean what a what a great great time and yeah i love that show i'm still a big fan of it and, and i'm excited to watch this this last season no that does sound like a great time it's also going to be a great time if you make your way to creek in the cave this weekend to see Maj Jabrani, he is headlining shows Friday and Saturday night. 
Two shows Friday night, two shows Saturday. The early show on Saturday is sold out, but you can get tickets to the other shows by going to creekandcave.com. Also, make sure to check out his latest special. That's right, The Birds and the Bees, as he mentioned, came out last year. It's available for free on YouTube. Just go to Maz's YouTube page to check that out, or you can just go to his website, majdabrani.com. Maz, thank you so much for the time today, man. Safe travels to and from Austin. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward. Take care. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.